Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writer's Jam Podcast, just part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker, although today he is wandering around the house. He does not seem overly interested in what I have to say, which hurts my feelings a little bit, but it's also nice to not have a dog underneath my feet doing weird shit while I'm trying to talk. Great show today. Uh, Jean Zardar is on. Uh, her second book is out right now. Take What You Can Carry. We had a fabulous conversation, and I'm really looking forward to you hearing from that. Uh, she studied creative writing at Loyola Marymount University and is the author of two novels, Take What You Can Carry and You Were Here. And she's the co-author of the memoir Psychic Junkie. And she lives in Los Angeles with her husband, son, and as she said, her insane dog. We were very nervous that throughout the hour, uh, our dogs were going to decide that they had some shit to say, which they didn't. We were very happy about that. Before we get to that interview, couple bits of business. As you know, the jam is out every Wednesday. Two things you can do to help us out. Tell your friends. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Pop on over to the Facebook page. Leave us a review there. And you can head over to the Writer's Jam and leave us a testimonial through the contact page. We have the video series. So when you're at the website, still a few more things you can do. Uh, the video webcast series. It's out on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel, but we post them on our website. Uh, we have three or four more coming up. Uh, Mondays and Fridays are typically when we release those. You can always catch the audio right here where you're listening to podcasts. If you are looking to buy the books of anybody who's been on the program, click on the bookshop link while you're on our site, and you can do that. If you're looking for books to read, we have book reviews. We are posting the reviews of everybody we have on the program as fast as we can read them. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, book recommendations, highlights, happenings around the web, all that good stuff. You don't have to do anything. That shit just shows up right in your email box. You can also support everybody on the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Click on that Patreon button, and when you do, uh, commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and bonus content from everybody on the web. And I know that recently, Molly and the crew over at Solid Listen have been using stereo and have been posting live audio shows as well. So if you're really interested in that, head over to the Solid Listen Network Website and find out all the information about that. So a thing happened yesterday uh, that I don't know why it caught me off guard. Like it shouldn't. I mean, I don't really pay attention uh, to this kind of stuff. So that's probably why it caught me off guard. But Kenny Mayne uh, announced he was leaving ESPN. And if you are right now asking yourself why in the shit is Brad talking about Kenny Mayne and ESPN, here's why. Years ago, when I was at Berkeley, uh, is a two-year program. I was a poor kid, got in, like I had to take out a shitload of loans. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of forty or fifty thousand dollars for the two years, and that was just to pay for the school and my basic, like food, like basic living expenses. But I also worked a full-time job and a part-time job because. 
life is more than food and school. So it was hard for me. Like, and it was, I was uh, bitter. I was bitter. That's a fair statement. I was bitter and angry. Particularly because part of the reason you go to Berkeley is, I mean, it was a top four graduate school at the program uh, for journalism. And so you didn't really have to interview for jobs. Like, all the big places came out to you. But you also had these opportunities. There was an Africa reporting trip, and um, there were just the big opportunities. But you had to figure out how to pay for that, for which there was zero chance I was going to get to pay for any of that. So my last semester, there was an opportunity. I don't even remember how long this thing was. I, in my head, it was a week, but it was probably a long weekend. Uh, it was the week before the Kentucky Derby, and there was a sports writing seminar out at Churchill Downs in Louisville, Kentucky. Well, that's a few hours from you know where I was from, and I thought, well, I can I can afford that, and I don't even know. My parents may have helped pay for the plane ticket or whatever, but I know that I saved up for it because I'm like I'm doing something while I'm here. Didn't want to be a sports writer, but I was like Appalachia, like horses, like it'll be good. So we go, and it was one of the most amazing experiences I ever had. Like we were. I got to meet Baffert, not me, like everybody there. I got to meet Bob Baffert, who, before all his troubles happened, um, we got to go in the back and meet all the horses, like Silver Charm and, like, all the horses that were boarded there. We got to hang out with the jockeys. Like, we got up at, like, 5 o'clock in the morning and, like, went in the, into the little place where the jockeys eat and get ready for the day. We had full run of the whole place. And then we had these seminars throughout the day where we just had amazing writers coming out talking about what it took to tell stories. And one of the people was Kenny Maine. And if you don't know Kenny Maine's story, like essentially Kenny Maine had the same career trajectory as me, only he was a little bit older. Uh, I mean, he had quit. He had done local television and had been trying to get on ESPN and basically had quit and had done everything from like, if I'm remembering, like, garbage collection, like, he was just doing anything, um, and, like, freelancing and, like, sending stuff to ESPN, and he was interviewed repeatedly, and, like, they never hired him, and he was literally getting ready to quit when he got his break. Now, if you don't remember Kenny Mayne 25 years ago, he went on SportsCenter, which, you know, the sort of heyday of it, it did not take itself very seriously, and in the context of these people not taking themselves very seriously was Kenny Maine, who was absolutely batshit crazy. Didn't know, you know, he will say, like, did not know the most about sports, but he really knew how to tell a story, and he really wanted to do that. And he was going to do it his own way after struggling all those years. Like, he wasn't really going to stop doing that. He was either going to make it the way he wanted to or he wasn't. And for a long time, he didn't. Like, that's the reality that happens when you do that. So when he was out there, like, he told that story. And, like, for a kid that was working two jobs, you know, it, taking out loans, didn't really know if he was going to get a job. I was freaking out about getting a job the first day I got there because I had all these loans. And I was already thinking about, like, how am I going to pay any of this back? It was comforting to have somebody like him tell that story and go, okay, like, you can make it. And I've, I'm quite sure he does not remember that seminar. But sitting with him as he was teaching us, like, how to read the betting sheets, how to bet on horse races, telling us stories about, like, his life and how he, you know, got to where he was, was just one of those moments that I just remember, like, okay, like, he did this, I can do. Like, this is possible. 
I mean, it's the thing people talk about when they say representation matters, right? Like, here was this dude who looked like me who was talking about the struggles that it took to break in um, and, you know, who struggled for a really long time and wasn't sure he was going to make it. And so when he announced that he was leaving ESPN and, like, his career with them was over, it didn't didn't break down in tears, but, like, there was just that gut-checked moment of, like, one, one, I'm getting older, right? But two, like just remembering how important that was, because I've shared that story with young writers, and I don't mean people who are young, I mean people early in their careers, about that conversation and about just how much that meant to me at the time. And it stayed with me for 21 years uh, as one of the most important things I've ever heard. And it's why... Again, why when I representation matters and, and why we talk about this, but why also on the show, it's really important to me to bring in people who have, you know, different backgrounds and have gone through different kinds of things, whether they're fiction writers or nonfiction writers, like letting people tell their stories, I think is just so important because it's within those stories that we begin to see ourselves and not that you have to see yourself in somebody that looks and sounds like you. Um, it is comforting when you do that because you think, ah, they did it. I can do it. But also, as we've talked about, like seeing your story in people that don't look and sound like you develops an empathy because then you go, okay, like I can understand things that maybe I couldn't um, before, didn't, or never thought about in that way before. So, you know, that happened. And as I was re listening to uh, Jean and I talking about this and like her journey, writing about her family and really like this novel is sort of her way of looking at her mother and father's relationship and why that's important you'll hear as we go through this um but i just thought oh yeah like that story with kenny main coming up seems like the perfect the perfect time for me to reflect on this as i'm reflecting on jean and i talking so i'm sure you all have that kind of story in your life always would love to see that you can you can find us on Twitter and all those things and tell us about that because I love hearing those stories from other people because it's inspiring. Um, and it's a good reminder to like always be pushing ourselves, right? Always be pushing ourselves to both share our stories with other people, but listen to other people's stories, right? And listen because we will learn things and you never know what you're going to learn when you hear somebody else's story. All right. Uh, enough of me. Thank you guys for stopping by the bunker today. Uh, I always appreciate you coming to spend time with Max and I, even if that son of a bitch is in the other room right now. I hope that your day is going well. I hope you're taking care of yourself and all of that stuff. The mask mandate has been lifted, but I hope that we're still being empathetic and taking care of everybody around us. And now, I'd like you to sit back and enjoy my conversations with Jean Zardar. That's exactly, <laughs> we, we do, we, we've always, I come from a long line of gardeners. Like we just love gardening and flowers and stuff. And the tradition is when anybody comes over to our house, you first take a garden tour and you just talk about what's growing. Like, oh, did you see this zucchini plant last time? You know, and it's like, people must just think that we're insane, but it's like, and when I go to somebody's house, I'm like, take me around, you know, I yeah. go to my dad's house. I'm like, let's see the garden, you know? Yeah. We're slowly adding like, She's, you know, I come from a long line of farmers, but I have no skill and yeah. she lived in the city, but she loves flowers. So I'm like, well, this is a match made in heaven. Like I know how to dig shit and you know yeah. how to plant stuff. And so we're slowly like turning my, I'm like, well, it's going to look like an adult lives in this house. And people <laughs> walk in and be like, 
you're not married? I'm like, no, but I have the greatest friend of all time. That's awesome. We all need a friend like that. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, I told my girlfriend, I'm like, well, you're just going to get half. You're going to have to get used to the fact that my best friend has a room in my house and like, she's got a garden in the back. Yeah. Yeah. She sounds great. Like she'll do all the shit I don't want to do. And I'm like, this this is perfect. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Is it, but it's getting kind of back to normal out there for you guys. Yeah, I mean, I mean, whatever that means. Yeah, I think they they opened up like indoor dining at a certain capacity, which is the I mean, you know, we I didn't really notice it because first of all, I love outdoor dining. LA is pretty lucky we can do that yeah. all year round. All basically. year round. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's not like we were lacking really in that department, but I mean, obviously a lot of restaurants have had a hard time with it. So I'm ha- you know, you definitely have I've seen a lot more people out on the street lately. Yeah. Um, which, so which is yeah. both good and like, oh, fuck. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we went, you know, there's, we live in, in Highland park and there's this street oh. called York Boulevard. Everybody goes to York and, you know, and it used to be this big thing. It's like kind of near college and it would get really crowded and it's, it's kind of back to that, you know, I yeah. mean, my husband was like, looks like spring break down on York Boulevard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A little frightening, but, uh, <laughs> I live in like the hip part of town. Like I just got lucky and found a house here. And like, so at, up until five o'clock, it's a lot of people like me. There's like, everybody's wearing a mask and socially distanced. Yeah. And it's like five 30 comes. And you know, I told my friend, I'm like, that's when grandpa needs to go home. Like all the mini skirts come out and shit like that. And like, there's no mask and they are at capacity. And I'm like, yeah, this is like, yeah, I live in two different, I mean, I'm out of here for many reasons, but like yeah. in the pandemic, I'm specifically out of here because they're the spreaders. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm good. I mean, like if, you know, if I go to a restaurant, you know, usually I'm there at five at the latest, that's like kind of pushing it for dinner time for me. Yeah. So, yeah. so I can avoid the crowds pretty yeah. easily, which is a good thing. Yeah, no, it's the red Robin. Like I laugh and I'm like, Oh shit, I'm up at six o'clock in the morning. Like, yeah, yeah. I ain't eating at eight o'clock at night. Who the hell does that? Like, exactly. Those are monsters crazy. are out. I know. So, uh, you're in LA. Where are you originally from? Well, I was actually born in LA. Um, oh shit! You're one of the. You're a. I'm. I'm it. I'm. I'm wow. The, I'm the, the one who was born here. <laughs> yeah. um, so and but then we moved to Colorado and Minnesota, then back to Colorado, and then back to LA. Because so, wait, so how long were you in LA when you were born? I was there until I was about nine. Oh, and so you spent. Moved, yeah. So, so, do you have brothers and sisters? I have one brother who's here, older and I have younger. a half brother who's in Texas. Older or younger? Uh, the my brother here is younger. My half brother is older. And he, oh, yeah, yeah. Did you grow up with him, or was this like? Because I got a half sister that I found out about. Yeah, it's pretty much like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it, my and, book actually begins with a phone call with my dad, where I was watching this show as a documentary of my family. Yeah, that I didn't know existed, and I called him, and literally the joke is he was like, "Well, I guess we need to talk," and I'm like, "What the <laughs> fuck?" Like, like, I always I tell my parents, I'm like, I, "Don't ever start anything with we need to talk because that has traditionally in my family uprooted yeah. everything I thought I knew." Yeah, we need to talk <laughs> is like it's over. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, how much older are you than your younger brother? Uh, just three years. Okay. Not much. Were you yeah. guys close growing up? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and he's, he's not far from, we're like pretty much all in the same neck of the woods. I mean, it's probably like a 45 minute drive now to everybody in my family. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he's, you know, getting married in October. No, but when you guys were kids, when you were young, were you guys close? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, I, I mean, I beat him up naturally. I mean, you know, I was an older sister. So it's like, he wanted to play with me. I didn't want him to play with me, but you know, at the same time, the only ally I had, right. Was him yeah. you know, against parents and, you know, trying to get pets and stuff like that. I needed somebody on my side. <laughs> what did your mom and dad do? My dad's an artist and my mom um, was a probation officer. Well, that is an interesting coupling. Right. Oh, you have no idea. Yeah. It, uh, they were opposites. They're not married. Go figure. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> these things happen. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, he, so my dad's an artist. My mom's a probation officer. I'm a writer and my brother's a cop. So there was like, oh, so there's no the direct family. line to any of that stuff. Right. No, no. I mean, not at all. There's no correlation. <laughs> I mean, totally random, right? <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I mean, you know, some people go through life and they're like, I don't really know how this happened. Like, it's sort yeah. of comforting to also go, well, I can see it. Yeah. yeah. This <laughs> one and this one, and then this one and this one. Yeah. <laughs> Did that make for a weird dynamic growing up, or is that just a thing that like kind of happened? Yeah, you no, know, my dad and I are very close and we're very similar. So that just made sense. He's the creative one. I was a creative one. Um, you know, my my mom and my brother were closer and I think they just, you know, jived off of law and order and whatever, yeah. you know. And so, I mean, I, it's all been interesting dynamics, right? I mean, every family has that, sure. but but for sure there's um you know, there's, there's definitely like my dad and I are the crazy ones in the family. I mean, yeah. I'll just, you know, we are, we, I we mean, embrace the crazy. I mean, I don't think you can be artistic and creative and not right. because so much of that is like trying to make sense of chaos. Like the world is chaos and an artist is trying to find some through line meaning yeah. in a thing that doesn't naturally have meaning, right? Like yeah. you're sort of imposing a meaning on the thing that you see. And that's yeah. fucking bizarre. Yeah. And then you've got, and then you've got the law enforcement side, which is like trying to tame the chaos. Right. right. And has a very black and white view of the world. Right. Exactly. And me, I'm just like, I would love to study the bad guys if I can, like, right. put me in, you know, those are my friends. I mean, you know, yeah. not really, but I'm yeah. amazed, you know, I don't but care. nuance <laughs> is nuance is part of creativity, right? Of like, um, yeah. you know, one of the things that I know we've talked about a lot on the show um, because, you know, people have, vast experiences and you know when you talk about healthcare or healthcare when you talk about law enforcement and things like that like I think we're going to look back on this time as like a barbaric time not because people are bad but just because what makes people be act um in criminal ways I think is based in a lot of anxiety and trauma and like mental like whatever like and we Mm -hmm. treat it very much like bonk and so it sort of makes sense that those two things exist in the household together it's like both we have to keep society safe, but also like, what does that mean for society? Yeah, definitely. Must have made yeah. dinner fun as hell. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, and and especially now it's like you can just, you know, you can see it's like we've got the very normal side of the family and then the crazy side of the family arrives, you know, and it's just, I mean, you can it, it's I mean, especially for the for the spouses, right? Because they sure. get they're they're front front and center of like the the circus <laughs> yeah without all of the trauma that went into the 30 right. years leading into that totally totally yeah. just fresh so, eyes not jaded <laughs> yeah it's so fast i mean one of the i think one of the reasons that i love doing the show is that um i tell people like i can sit down with a writer you and i don't know each other and we can talk about this stuff because i think writers naturally are always trying to unpack this stuff like we're yeah. very comfortable with like saying okay this is really not healthy like no let's look at it and what does yeah. it mean? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we love, I mean, that's part of the job, right? Is is to be able to to break it all down and to at least want to, you know, attempt yeah. to break it down. Yeah. Yeah, and to make meaning out of that stuff. So you're creative growing up. Like, does that mean you're, I, I always ask this question, like, are you like the arty kid? Are you in theater? Like, who are you in school? Oh, I wanted to be in theater so badly. Um, no, I, I wanted to be a lot more disturbed, I think, than I was. Like I, I, you were trying hard to be emo. I was really hoping for more <laughs> issues. Um, I didn't have as many as I was aiming for, but um, but I, I think I did a good job anyhow. But I, yeah, I was definitely when I went to college. I started off as a psychology major, um, oh. and then and then somehow got roped into the English department. Um, and into writing. And it was like, I just knew that that was where I belonged. And I had one of the professors at my college say, you're, you're, you're meant to be in the English department. So um, I abandoned the psychology thing and went for that. But then I also was trying to do theater at the same time, absolutely zero skills, zero. I mean, you know, the enthusiasm is there, but that just doesn't always translate on the stage. Yeah. So, no, in fact, I feel like it doesn't at all. No. <laughs> just judging no. from my own experience with that, I'm like, I'm going to do this. And they're like, you're not actually just yelling. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? We were actually, that's exactly what I did. So the one play that I got cast in, I was, I think I was the Mariner in The Tempest. And I, I'm pretty sure I had one or two lines Maybe I mean, I wasn't trusted with more than that. And I still have nightmares about getting them wrong. But my only stage instruction was to like run across the stage, like a chicken with my head cut off. That was it. I did it. I excelled, you know, and I'm sure I probably messed it up in some way. (laughs) But in your head, you're like nailed it. Oh, yeah. I was the best chicken with my head cut off. <laughs> it's, you know, it's interesting. So why did you go into psychology? Because I have, I already have a theory about you. Why did you go into that? Oh, good, good. Um, I don't know. I mean, I always just was fascinated by human behavior, I think. And, you know, it's probably the same thing that made me want to be a writer was to yeah. try and get to motivations and understandings and, and, and to really, I mean, I love, I love stories about people, but also I'm the kind of person that people will tell things to. And that was always, you know, like send me into a bar. I'm stuck in the bathroom forever as somebody's telling me about everything. Same with grocery store checkout lines, you know, and I love it because I'm, you know, secretly making a note of everything and, you know, (laughs) hoping to remember them and write them down at some point. Right. We steal people's souls and use them in our own art. Yeah. Yeah, But I mean, like you understand the, I mean, like those are the same things, right? Like psychology and writing are the same thing. Totally. So what is it that you think made you, what do you think clicked with the writing in college that not in psychology? Like, what was it that you were like, well, now I have to put this on the page? I think it was just the creative aspect. I think I needed that still. Um, I don't know how creative you want to get if you're a psychologist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. There's probably a good one, probably not a lot, but a bad <laughs> one would be like, well, let's see what we can do with this person. Yeah. <laughs> okay, a little experiment here. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I think... I fell in love with words for one thing, you know? And so there was just something about, you know, I mean, certain words and like, I love, I mean, I don't even love poetry. I do love poetry, but I don't seek it out. But when I'm reading fiction, I will, I respond to the the interesting word choices or the arrangement of a sentence and stuff. So there was something just about the actual, that, you know, the actual writing process that I just loved that I couldn't get in psychology, obviously, but you know, the stories and the process is really interesting. But I mean, if, if writing didn't work out, I mean, I think I would probably have gone back to school, you know, and and probably gone the psychology route. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. 
Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I mean, like, I have a lot of people that come out of theology, a lot of people that come out of psychology. And, like, it's always, like, this search for meaning. Like, it's, yeah. I feel like those things are, like, when we talk about, like, how you become a writer, right? Because nobody knows how to become a writer. Like there's not right. like, there's there's not a path to become a writer. But I think so much of it stems from like being curious about meaning in the world and having some framework to, to make meaning out of stuff, right? Yeah. Theology gives you that. Psychology gives you that. Like, you know, I think even law stuff gives you that. I have, I've interviewed a lot of former lawyers who became writers because it's all about structure and like crafting a narrative about what do these facts mean? Right, right. And also getting some resolution from things because, yeah. you know, that's something that we can, you know, you can, you can, re -ex you can explore things. And, you know, I mean, a lot of my book has to do with my dad's stories that I heard growing up of his life in Kurdistan and Iraq, which is like crazy, crazy place to grow up. I mean, horrible things happened. And in a lot of ways, I was able to kind of fictionalize these stories and right the wrongs, you right. know, and, and have there be a resolution that, you know, I would hope to see in life. You know? Yeah. And this um, is the thing, right? Like fiction allows you to control it. There, I mean, it, it allows you to, I don't, I, I interviewed Alison Wood who wrote a book called being uh, Lolita, which is a memoir. And, you know, she said more eloquently than I will say here, which is that writing isn't therapy. Writing doesn't cure trauma. Writing allows you to retake your story and yeah. to, and to frame the story the way, you know, obviously hers was a, a memoir, but like it allows you to control a thing that you did not control. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And I think like when you tie that to psychology, that's why I always think it's interesting. There's so many people that I've interviewed that like sort of either came out of that or had degrees in that or whatever. And it's like, yeah, this, it feels like the most natural progression to me. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and you know, especially you look at like suspense writers and stuff who are, you know, dealing with these like, 
you know, crazy characters and, and like really trying to get in. I mean, you know, I mean, how close were they to becoming a, a psychologist, you know, yeah. to understand, you know, you have the fascination with certain personalities or certain disorders or, you know, it's, yeah, I, I, I definitely, I, if I had another, if, if basically if I had another chance right now, I think I would be doing that. Yeah. You know, I mean, for sure there was like some fork in the road at some point where all of a sudden I was like, words, I like words, you know, yeah. but you know, but I was really close to going the other way. Yeah. And like, honestly, like maybe I have this all the time. I'm like, there's like four things that I, if I'm like, if I could have yeah. been able to do all of those, mm-hmm. I feel like I'd be a better writer because I would know things that like, I don't even know is the wrong word, but like have a framework for those things. And I'm like, Oh, I can explain this or understand it better. Yeah. And that helps me craft a story better. Yeah, exactly. No, I, um, you know, I, I, the one really great thing about being, cause I am a little bit obsessive (laughs) is, um, (laughs) the one great thing about it is that (laughs) I do kind of delve into different, into different, um, you know, subjects, and I really get into them. And it's kind of like, you know, studying a new thing yeah. every so often, you know? And I mean, I, I did that with like fig trees, for instance. I don't know if I'm ever going to write something about fig trees, but at one point I knew almost everything I could possibly know as an amateur fig tree appreciator. I don't know what the word, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and so that's, I'm definitely into... I'm definitely, I'm definitely into learning as much as I can about things. So yeah, I mean, all the different careers would have helped me as a writer. Yeah. And what I think that's part of being a writer too, is that that's the other thing is that you have to be deeply curious about, and I say deeply specifically, like not just like, Hey, tell me about this thing, but like, Oh my God, tell me about this thing. And now what are the 50 things I can read about this and who yeah. else should I talk to about this? And like, you're the worst person at a dinner party. Cause if you ever meet somebody that does that thing, they're not getting out of the corner. Nope. No, gosh, no, <laughs> no. You know, one of my worst experiences, well, I, I shouldn't say worst experiences, but one of my most missed experiences was I was on a plane. It was going to be going across the Atlantic. And so naturally I took, I got in my seat, popped an Ambien and then happened to talk to the guy next to me who was an antiques dealer. And all I wanted to do was talk about antiques. And all of a sudden, like I saw two seatbelt signs and like everything started splitting. And then I woke up and I was like, Oh, I missed everything. (laughs) I was going to learn all about being an antiques dealer. (laughs) I, when my writing partner and I had finished our first book and I really wanted to write a book on the um, jet propulsion lab, which is the Mm -hmm. group that does everything but man stuff. So anything that's not man yeah. stuff, the JPL does. It's basically the kids in shop class that you knew who like blew shit up, right? They went and worked for the JPL. Right. And I'm, oh, yeah. I'm fascinated by that. And it was at the sort of height of string theory and dark matter. And I was on a plane and I dumped out my book, you know, my backpack and it had all these magazines and stuff. And the guy sitting next to me had worked at the JPL. And I told people like for the next four hours, I'm sure everybody around us was like, why does this fucking guy keep asking this poor person? (laughs) Because I'm like, dark matter seems like bullshit. Go like, you know, like, 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 tell me about Newtonian physics versus string theory. Like, and he was like, well, let me tell you. And he would talk for an hour. And I'm like, this is the greatest flight I've ever been on in my whole life. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Ever. Because yeah. he never has people asking him about that stuff. And he, so he was like, let me tell you let, why dark yeah. matter doesn't matter to us. And I'm like, 
yeah, I want to hear that. <laughs> oh my God. He was in heaven. Everybody was in heaven. That's, you know, we have JPL out here in Pasadena. Yeah. And so, yeah, we've, we've, we actually, my son, we went and visited once and it was, you know, before everything shut down. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, just walking around, just looking at people. I was like, you're very important. You're very yeah. important. You're very important. And the best thing is like, it literally is those shop kids. So they all have like mohawks and shit like that. Like they don't care. Like they were yeah. like weirdo shop kids who are now like, oh yeah, we put the Mars Rover on the, thing and you're like oh you're super cool yeah yeah (laughs) so cool there's a helicopter on mars right now and i'm like we we launched a helicopter on mars yesterday and i'm like well that's the coolest thing we've ever done in the history of the world yep we put a helicopter (laughs) on a different planet so you graduate college and you have moved to writing um and as we know that's not really a career so what do you do after you leave college and you're like oh shit I, I know, right? Exactly. Uh, well, for I somehow ended up managing a retail store and I was doing that when I was in college. And so then it just kind of became, you know, I think our manager ended up leaving. I ended up taking over his position, like right as soon as I graduated college, which was fine. It had nothing to do with anything, but I had odd hours and it wasn't stressful. So I could still write. Uh, so I did that. And then after that, I ended up working for an agent and then working for a writer, producer, director. And okay, you know, tell me about the, tell me about working for an agent. What was that like? Oh yeah. So <laughs> it was, it was definitely a little, a little crazy, um, <laughs> but no, it was, it was good. I mean, there were a lot of big personalities in the agency, yeah. um, but uh, I still, Who did you guys represent they, well, my agent represented directors Um, just very specifically directors. Um, and, uh, but the rest of it was like a literary agency, but it wasn't for books. It was, you know, which of course, because that's the other thing I want to write books. So naturally I take a job that has nothing to do with anything I want to do because it would have made a lot more sense for, yeah. So I don't go the easy way for things. What is a literary agency? That's not for books. It's just scripts like screenwriting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's still, you know, there was still writing involved. It just wasn't the kind I did. And naturally nobody could help me with the kind of writing I wanted to do. So were you um, reading scripts? Like, were you somebody that was doing that? I did a little bit of that. I didn't do as much because my agent mostly was directors. So uh, I didn't have to read that many scripts, but I have over the course of my time read a lot of scripts and I have, I actually love, I think screenwriting is a lot of fun. Like I'm, it's a, such a different animal. Um, But but it's, it's, gosh, it's a lot faster. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and one of the things you realize very quickly is like, oh, there's no words in this. Like yeah. it, it's a 90 minute movie. And you're like, there's that. I wrote a short film one time and the director like took the first five pages I wrote. He's like, I can do this in the establishing shot. And I'm like, yep. I'm going to leave and just let you do what you yeah. need to do. Cause yeah. I want to fight you right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I'm like, I need a Aaron Sorkin talkie, like talkie. Yeah. No, none of your yeah. establishing bullshit. No, no, no. Subtlety. I mean, yeah. come on. Unspoken yeah. looks. No. So how do you, so you go from retail to then sort of work. Like, did you just realize like, well, I need to start getting into a place where there's like yeah. people doing creative stuff. Yeah. And the retail store that I worked at, I mean, I would have worked there forever if they had let me because um, that's just what I do. And, yeah. <laughs> and, but luckily, the, the, luckily the retail store closed. Mm. So I was forced to leave. Um, and at that point it was like, okay, I have, you know, this, this background and I, what I should be doing is moving to New York and trying to actually work in a field that could get me somewhere in what I want to do. 
Um, but I'm, you know, I've always been really happy writing in the morning, writing in odd hours. Yeah. Uh, you know, I never was really driven to get published. I was always really driven to just write. So I was in no hurry, really. So I just kind of did my own thing and, um, yeah, ended up working at an agency and still writing in the morning and writing in the evening. And then from there ended up meeting the, the man that I've worked with for, you know, 20 something years, who's a writer, producer, director. And, um, and that was it. What do you and mean you've worked with this? What do you mean you've worked with him? I still years? work with him part-time, you know, and he's, he's Doing... a great, uh, like assistant work, reading scripts, anything. Really? Travel. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, when I start something, I don't ever stop. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I, if they had not closed that retail store, I would still be there right now. So it's it's definitely, um, I'm I'm a creature of habit. I you know I I I'll never I'll never be over anything. <laughs> well, and but the other thing is like if you're trying to make it as a writer, like I mean I joke about it, but like I you know I was a journalist for a while because that was like the only thing you could do in the '90s as a writer to make money. Like you had to right. like like it's it's hard to make a living. You know, pretty much after I think after the '80s, like once the publishing industry changed, where it was no longer like well you get a three book deal at the beginning of your career and like the first two books are you building your audience and you're going to, yeah. like, that shit went away when like desktop publishing came around and like the internet started popping up. It was like, well, now you got to kind of have an audience. Right. And right. it's hard to be 24 out of college. Like I don't have an audience and the internet's not really a thing yet. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So you're working at the agency. Are you like, what's your plan when you're, when you're, when you left the retail store, you're at the agency, like, what are you thinking? I mean, you know, I wish I thought more, but <laughs> I didn't. It was just like I knew I needed a day job. So yeah. this is, my dad, my dad was always this amazing visual artist, but he always had a day job. He worked yeah. as a scenic artist at NBC, ABC. So he always did this thing that was kind of loosely related, but not what he wanted to yeah. do. But that's just how you pay the bills. So I guess I never really figured out that I could make things a little bit more advantageous for me if I actually, you know, aimed better with the, <laughs> with yeah. the career. But, um, but no, I just figured it was a day job. And so whatever it was, at least it was still around people who are creative. And at least I got to kind of be involved. And I've always loved television. I've always loved movies. So it was fun to, to watch that. I mean, I ended up working for an agent who represented directors was probably, you know, not the best of things. I probably would have, I probably would have been more well-suited to agent who was representing at least screenwriters. Yeah. Um, but, but I had a great time. I mean, you know, I watched a lot of TV, a lot of our directors did X-Files and stuff. So, you oh. know, there I was, I think it was like what Sunday nights thinking I was doing homework. Yeah. It used to, <laughs> it, 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 here's how old I am. I believe it originally aired on Fridays because it was uh Briscoe County junior, the adventures of Briscoe Ch County junior with Bruce, uh, whatever evil dead. And then X-Files. That was the first year. That, that was my favorite Friday night block. Yep. So uh, I've interviewed lots of um, Michael Elias, who was a screenwriter who uh, uh, wrote the jerk. Um, and uh, I just interviewed um, uh, Burt, Weisbord, who was a producer and, and did stuff, and Stephanie Story, who worked in television. And all of them said, like, being around people that wrote TV and film was mm -hmm. the best master class in how to tell a story because everything is so tough. Like, minute seven in a procedural, this is what needs to happen. Minute right. 13, in that yeah. you realize that writing 
the writing is creative, the format is not, and that's where the creativity comes. Yeah. Like how much of that do you think you sort of took in as you were watching all of it? Maybe if you're not even knowing, I don't know if you knew it or not, or if somebody was talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely feel like some of that rubbed off on me. Um, for sure that, I mean, a little bit of just like the, you know, appreciation for the three act, you know, I mean, yeah. there's, there's a lot, I think that has kind of rubbed off on me. Um, I know, I, I mean, I, pro I think I learned more about screenwriting just accidentally, you know, yeah. trying to, you know, just reading scripts and, <laughs> and also of course, you know, hearing, hearing people talk about things and getting notes is like, I mean, a little course, a little crash course and everything. When you get notes on something you've written, it's like, ah, now I get it. Yeah. You, know, you never learn from the compliments, do you? <laughs> no. Well, but that was why I was interested in like what you did, because one, I mean, I, I, I've interviewed 150 people for this show. And like, I literally have never had anybody say like, I wanted to be a writer when I was five and I knew how to do it. There's a lot of people that were like, I wanted to be a writer. And then they're like, and then I fucked around for 20 years and here's my book. Right. Like you, you sort of learn how the business works by doing it. Yeah. And film and television weirdly is the most like linear kind of path to being a writer, just because it, the structures are there. The business is there. There's a lot of money. I mean, there's more money in that writing than any other writing in the world. Yeah. I, yeah. It, which is again, like, why, why, why did I pick what I, I don't know, but I mean, yeah, all of, because I, all of us print folks are like, we're bitter. We're like, you guys just yeah. take our stuff and turn it into a show. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, there I am working, working amongst Hollywood and I'm just like, Oh, I'm going to go home and write my book. <laughs> you know? but you're taking all of that stuff in and like that yeah. sort of becomes graduate school for you. Right. Yeah. And I, and I do see things so visually too, that, you know, I mean, reading, you know, writing my book, I'm seeing the scenes and I'm really kind of directing them in my head, how I want them to go. You know, it's, it's just a very much longer way of writing the scene for me. You know? Yeah. But like, I mean, this, I mean, and here's the part of the program where I play psychologist, like your yeah. dad's a visual artist. You yeah. go work in a visual medium to figure out how to do what you want to do. You are your dad's daughter. Like yeah. this all makes sense, right? It like, all makes sense. Like, do you think about that? Like, do you recognize that like, oh, yeah. I ended up in these things because yeah, that was oh. the familiarity. For sure. For sure. And I mean, and I, it's, what's interesting too, is my aunt on my mom's side. So my mom's a probation officer, my aunt, her sister is a poet. So there's, it's actually like, there's some creative stuff on both sides, but my dad is the only creative out of his entire family. The yeah. the rest of them are all like his, you know, we have a doctor, an engineer, you know, and then some political activists and stuff. And then there's my dad who, you know, somehow came out the artist. <laughs> um, and so I'm definitely fascinated, like what made each of them into what they were a little bit of yeah. nature, a little bit of nurture, you know, but but I think if there is some kind of, you know, whatever it is, I have it on both sides. The creative yeah. thing is definitely on both sides. And I, you know, I even heard stories that my, my grandmother in, you know, my Minnesota grandmother, the one on my mom's side, she wanted to be, I think, an English teacher or a writer when she was younger. But, you know, you, she grew up on a farm. She didn't have a cho choice. Yeah. So, she was a woman, yeah. like, at that time. like Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> I think it probably stretches back even further than I realize. Yeah. And like poetry really is the sort of in terms of like the written word is the visual written word. Yeah, I mean, definitely. 
you know, like yeah. how do I use this one word to paint a picture? It's like totally. It's part of the reason I don't like poetry, but like when I come across <laughs> good stuff, I used to host a reading series that I and I called every everybody but poets. So I was like, anybody can come here but poets, because poets, there's poetry readings everywhere. There's not yeah. just like random readings for everybody else. Like yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, when you get a when you get somebody that's good at that and you hear it, you're just like son of a bitch. Like yeah, like when you I I don't know if you saw the. I can't, I don't even, I, I forgot her name, but the, the young woman who did the poem at. Uh, oh, yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the, right. I mean, I watched that and I was like, well, I mean, I like Amanda that poetry. Goodman, Amanda, Amanda Goodman, something like that. Amanda, yeah. yeah. I just yeah, I watched did. it and was like, holy shit. Like, I hate it when young people have more talent already than I'll ever have in my whole life. I know. I know. I was like, well, she's got something figured out here. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to buy all of her stuff forever because it's all going to be better than anything I do. I know. That was, you know, watching that, I was like, that moment just, yeah. oh, and I yeah. mean, how many people decided they wanted to be a poet after seeing that? I mean, unfortunately, how many people decided they wanted yeah, yeah. to be it's, a poet This is both a, a positive <laughs> and a negative. So yeah. you're doing this. So when do you decide that you're going to write, but also it might be nice if something gets published? <laughs> I know. I know. Well, so no, I'm still waiting for that. I know you have books oh, out. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I just, still would like to. Yeah. So I, I, a friend of mine um, was addicted to psychics. And when I say addicted to psychics, I mean like couldn't stop calling psychics, yes. racked up tons of debt. And so we were, had kind of said we should, she should write a memoir. I'll, I'm the writer. I'll write it with her, you know? And so we kind of got like a chapter of that done and she's a go-getter. I'm not like you put me in a room with an, you know, an agent who represents writers. I'm probably going to be like, oh, I love books and that's it, you know? And so I'm not the person who's going to further or even start my career, but she was that person. So I think she approached him. She was at a party. She told him that she had a book idea for him or a, a book, whatever, I think a chapter. After, he was like, great, send it to me, didn't think anything of it, and then actually read it and thought it was great. And so she's the reason that we actually got the first book published, and that was her memoir. So obviously, I didn't have that much creative license. Yeah, <laughs> uh, right. Because it kind of was her life. But um, but don't understand that. The writing of the thing is still important. Like, yes, everybody's got a story, but like you've heard people tell terrible stories of interesting things. Yeah. And and she, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think. Some there needed to be some lightness with it because yeah. you know, she was addicted to psychics, which is kind of funny, kind of tragic. And so we wanted it to be a little bit of a mix of both. Yeah. And also um, predatory, right? Like that is a that is part of a predatory yeah. underlying thing that happens, I don't know if everywhere, but definitely in America. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. There was a lot of scamming happening, a lot yeah. of, you know, but so so she got me started on that. And then, you know, at the same time I was writing something else and and then kind of went from there and then figured I would just, you know, I had, well, I wrote another book. Stop. So you're kind of writing something else. I feel like that is a summary of a story. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was writing a, a story. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I wrote another book that didn't end up getting published, I should say, but then, but then did was, start writing another one. Was it a um, novel? It was a novel and it and didn't, it, it would just, it never, it never, nobody, nobody wanted it, but. So you shopped it. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So, but I feel like just so you know, like I don't know how many writers you talk to, but like every writer's like their first book, their first novel, yep. one, it takes 10 years to write. 
Uh Two, it's always like the fifth book they've written, whether they've rewritten the same book five times or whether they have a bunch of other books in like, you know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I feel like it's also the most, usually the most like autobiographical, you know, so it's like, you kind of got to get that out of your system so that then you can, you're free to move on and invent more stuff. Right. Um, So I, so then I did start inventing stuff. So my last novel, you were here, I started writing that one and that one took me probably on and off like eight years something like that, mostly yeah. because it was off most of the time. Yeah. You know? um, I mean, I did other things in the middle of it, put it away. And then I had my son. And afterwards, I was like, I should probably do something with this book. I have this book sitting in my computer, I should probably try and get it back out there. Yeah. And so we did. And, you know, I ended up with this agent who I just love. And she sent it out and it got published. And it was like, Oh, my God, wait a second, I should probably, you know, make more of an effort at this whole career thing. Um, (laughs) But it's also eight years, right? Like, I mean, it's, I cannot tell you how many times I've talked to people and it's, I mean, it, 10 years is like a thing. It's like a real thing to do. And and tell me, you may disagree with this, but people have told me like, cause I do nonfiction and they've said the only way to learn how to write a novel is to write a novel. You can sit through every class you want to. You can, you can read every book about it, but until you've sat down and wrestled with that thing, yeah. You don't really know what you're doing. And the worst part is it doesn't help you with the second one. No, it really doesn't. <laughs> or the third. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> like, yeah. so if you want, it's why writers are drunk and divorced and miserable. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Yeah, no, there's no, there's no, you're, you haven't learned it. I don't know writing, you know, yeah. I know what I like and that's pretty much it. And that changes too. So, yeah. you know, I mean, what I'm drawn to one day is not going to be what I'm drawn to the next day, but I think having my son definitely kind of made me realize, okay, first of all, I guess I'm an adult. So I should probably try to be an adult or behave like an adult and like do something, you know, but also wanted, you know, wanting to leave him something, yada, 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 you know, all that good stuff. Well, but you say that, but it's, it's true. true. Yeah. I mean, like it, and it's, I think it is about half of this program is me telling writers like, no, 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 don't make a joke out of that because that's real. Like it's a real thing. And like the, the reason we write, the reason we sift through that stuff, the reason that you suffer for 10 years or eight years to write a thing is because it actually matters to you. Yeah. Right. Like that, whatever question you were answering in the book matters. Yeah. There's, I mean, you're always exploring a message yeah. and you know, if you're going to spend 300 pages on a message, 10 years of your life on a message, it's going to be a message you agree with, yeah. I would hope, you know, yeah. or you you feel strongly about in yeah. some way. Yeah. So, I mean, like this, this latest book, I, I feel like, because this one explores a lot of like my Kurt, Kurdish side. Yes. And I feel like this is something I'm leaving my son because yeah. it, you know, if he wants to learn more about his ancestry and granted, I've fictionalized the stories my dad told me, you know, so there, it's not, my main character is not my dad and what happened is not exactly what happened, but is really what happened. Um, you know, in a way, I feel like this is something that my son can look back on and be like, Oh, I remember my mom told me that this happened, but it happened this way, you know, and this is really what, you know, my grandparents and, you know, my grandfather endured, you know, and what my great grandparents lived through. Yeah. Um, I had, uh, uh, Ava Oma on who wrote, uh, Daughters Uh, of Smoke and Fire, right? Yes. Yes. I know her. We're friends. Yeah. I mean, of course, I mean, we're both Kurds. (laughs) Yeah. This is not shocking to me, right? Like, um, (laughs) historical fiction i've had several historical fiction writers on and all of them have come to it in the same way which is 
something about their family and something they discovered and then sort of exploring that. And then, yeah, you want to leave that for somebody else, but also understanding and like putting it all in perspective, I think for you is the most, it's, it's, I think the only way you can write a meaningful book, like you're leaving it for your son, but really isn't it as much about you trying to figure this stuff out and make sense of it? Oh, absolutely. And understanding your, your family and trying to, you know, one thing that I realized because so my book has to do with a, a female American who goes with her boyfriend back to Kurdistan and he's Kurdish. Well, she's a fish out of water, you know, from the beginning. Well, it's very much based on, you know, inspired by, I should say, my mom and my dad. You know, my mom's from Minnesota. She went to Kurdistan of Iraq. There was a <laughs> bomb threat on the plane on the way there, you know, which was the first indication that maybe the trip was not like the vacation <laughs> she always wanted. <laughs> you know, I mean. Not a whole I, lot of that up in Minnesota. No, no, we, we, she, she skipped that part. But so we, you know, she had us, my, my brother and I with her at the time. And, and I had always heard the stories, you know, the soldiers who held us at gunpoint, you know, how they took my dad away, the secret police came, they, all this. I had never thought of it really from her point of view until I'm writing my character and trying to really put myself in her shoes. What would she be thinking at this moment? And it, I mean, it was weird because, you know, I'm thinking I started off this story thinking I was going to come to a better understanding of my dad, which I think I did, um, and his family. But I also really kind of got into my mom's head. And there was a lot I a lot of times I got to ask her questions, you know, and also like things I'd never considered. Like, what was it? This was you were meeting his family for the first time, his parents for the first time. What was that like? Because I completely skipped over that part in my head when I was thinking about this trip. You know, so it was it was definitely a way to understand my family and to like really put myself in their shoes. Well, and all and I'm going to now speak for you. And so tell me if I'm completely yeah. wrong about this. Go ahead. But also, like as someone who having an ethnicity, but you grew up in America. Right. So like and we very specifically in America, like the Kurdish people, like we have a very specific view of what the Kurdish people are. Right. Yeah. And it comes out of two wars. Right. Yeah. The first is like, they're our friends. And the second of like, oh, we abandoned them and they're all getting yes. killed. And if you yes. ask, I think if you ask most Americans, that is the extent of That's what they it. know about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think it it must have been also interesting as you were writing this to be an, like an American and not really have, at least from our conversation, not really even knowing what that part of your history is. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I grew up with the Kurdish community, but I didn't grow up going there as much as I would have liked to for many reasons, wars being one of them. Right. Um, And just America. (laughs) Yeah. And America. Um, But, you know, I, I, you know, one of the things that had always like stuck in my mind, you know, when we were little, when we went there, I was really young. I had this nightgown set, this robe and this nightgown that I loved because, you know, you're five years old. Like that's, that's what you do. You love your nightgown. Um, And when we left, there was like this little girl that we were very close to and her family, we hung out with them all the time. And um, when we left, the robe was missing. It wasn't in the suitcase. And I remember being so upset. Where is the robe? And my parents told me they'd given it to the little girl. Well, as a five-year-old, I just couldn't understand it. How could you do that? And I was so upset. And I I remember them saying, it's probably the only nice thing that she has. Like, you know, like what else does she have, you know, stop being a spoiled little girl. And I mean, it's hard to tell that to a child, especially an American child who doesn't have a concept of these things. And, but it stuck with me to this point where I was like, I, you know, why, why am I the part of the family that's over here? 
you know, like yeah. how did I end up lucky in, in, a, in a sense, you know, to not be persecuted basically for, yeah. you know, being who I am. I mean, why me? Why not them? And so it, this was also a way to kind of explore that a little bit, you know, and to kind of reconcile my own kind of feeling of, you know, guilt, I guess. Or, yeah. I mean, it's weird survival, yeah. uh, survivor's guilt. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. um, you know, I've, I've told the story on the show, like my family settled large parts of Appalachia, North Carolina and Kentucky. Like they were very well off. No, cause nobody settled land here who was poor. Right. So like right, the people right. that were doing that were, you know, right. we had our own issues. And, um, and now it like where we settled are the poorest places in this country. Like f- I think four or five of the 10 poorest counties are the places where my family was from. Right. Um, and you know, like they're all still there. They've been there since 1804. Like you can, like I, we got our history back to the 1300s in England. I know exactly there are special collections about us. Wow. But I, left like I went to Berkeley like I you know I've I've sort of done these things and it's not the same I don't mean to equate the two other than to say like in the Venn diagram of sort of empathetic understanding I'm like I am from that place but I am not of that place and when I write about it and talk about it I'm always very careful to be like look yeah like this is where this is my people but if I go back there they don't necessarily recognize me as one of them right Right. Even though everything about me comes from that. Yeah. And it's such an interesting way to have to write about it, right? Like, do you yeah. have that, like, is that a thing you have struggled with or gone through? Yeah. Well, the feeling of not belonging completely is something that I've always kind of, because, you know, you go to my Minnesota side, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> they're all blonde, blue. I mean, they're all like, they're all hundred. My mom's hundred percent Belgian. You know, my dad's hundred percent Kurdish. Like, I mean, opposite, opposite. And, you know, and even with the Kurds, even though I look more Kurdish, I stand out because I'm an American. Like I can't get around that, you know? Um, So I always felt a little bit like, I just don't make sense in any setting. And, and, and I'm fine with that because I think as a writer, you kind of, it's nice to be on the fringes of something, right. And to study it. And especially when you don't understand something, you want to study it even more and you want to get closer to it and figure it out. Um, so I was always content to be the one to kind of watch things, but it was definitely driven by that kind of insecurity of not a hundred percent belonging to what I am from. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that as a through line for this show is exactly that, which is, I believe you cannot be a writer unless you feel like you don't fit in because right. your entire life is observing a thing yep. and trying to understand what those humans are doing. And like, why don't I feel like, and so in a, in a real sense, I think writers are translators and you have to have feet in different, I mean, you only got two, so you got feet (laughs) in different worlds all the time and you're trying to, and so it's always imperfect, which is why being a writer is awful, but also it's a skill that only a certain amount, a kind of person can do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't have anything to do with your training or whatever. It really has to do with where you fit in on this big blue ball in the void. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's being, being a visitor too is, you know, that's when you, that's when you take note of things. Yeah. That's when you're, when you're noticing, you know, the way, like the, the color of the, the streetlights, you know, some of them are yellow, some of them aren't like you go to a place where all of a sudden they're yellow streetlights and you're like, why is it? So those are the things, I mean, when you're kind of a visitor in your own world, you know, everything is interesting in a yeah. way that's not when it's mundane and established. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a constant question, right? Like, I think that writers are always trying to answer a question, and, and yeah. there's just constant questions happening. So I'm th- now I'm fascinated just because of someone that you know feels like not c- both part of, but not part of the right. world that I'm from. Like writing the book, what did it give you? Like, wh- like when you got done putting it together, and I don't need to know what the answer is because, like there's not really answers to the questions that we're writing about. They're just sort of journeys. But like when you got done, what was that feeling? Like, what do you feel like you put behind you? Well, I, I, I don't know if I put anything really, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, I, I definitely felt like I did something to, to help people, you know, even know who the Kurds are, which Mm -hmm. was a big thing for me. You know, I know my dad's an artist and a lot of his work had to do with the Kurds and trying to kind of spread knowledge and awareness. And so I feel like I did my little part in, in that. Um, so that was good. I, you know, other than just, I think it also just helped me, you know, we, I wrote the book before I took another trip to Kurdistan. So I had, I knew what it was like backwards researching, but I knew what I was looking for, (laughs) you know, and, but because I had written all that stuff, I definitely had a better understanding of so much that when I got there, it was just, everything was enhanced because I had done all this work into this book. Um, It was a completely different experience. And had I gone there before having written the book. Do you feel transformed? I'm in the midst of writing yeah. about Appalachia and my family, right? Yeah. And I don't really know what the end of that's going to feel like. Like, I don't know when I'm done if I'm going to be like, well, yeah, I, I feel like I'm going to get done and still go like, no, nah, I'm still an outsider. Yeah, I think you're going to still be an outsider, but... <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they might like you a little bit more. I don't uh, know. I don't no, think oh, so. well, it depends on what you're writing. Yeah, though, like, I'm writing what I think is the truth. So yeah, I feel like... yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm still always going to be an outsider. Yeah. I think I'm always going to be an outsider. Um, but I think you, maybe it's just the acceptance of that that you get at the end of the day. Cause you're like, Hey, I now see how my outsiderness has benefited this moment, you know, because I was able to write this, you know, they say you can't write something without distance, you know, and of course you're talking about time, but it's also that distance of kind of standing outside of the group. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe it's just that acceptance of of where we came from and how that worked out. It's interesting, too. Again, like the through line with your father, that you're like, well, his art was about this. And now my art is about that as well. And like there yeah. like there is obviously some desire to connect. Like mm-hmm. there is some desire to not be outside is to find something right. that is like, well, no, I am a part of this thing, even if I'm not. I mean, it's it's the discussion that we have in America, right? Which is like you, it, it crops up all the time when people are like, "Well, that's not black," or "That is black," and it's like, "Well, you don't get to de- you don't get to determine the blackness right. of like if like that's not a thing that anybody else gets to determine other than the person that's going through that." Right, and it, right. And like, we're very bad, and I don't, again, I can't speak for the world, but America's very bad at like having that discussion, right? And to say like, "Well, yeah, like." you're part of the, this Kurdish thing. And it may not be what somebody says is whatever authentic or whatever the word people use, but like, it is a part of who you are, right? It is a very big part of the sort of way that you see the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, and also I just have always had such tremendous respect for my father and what he went through that I think I definitely, he's somebody that I've wanted to emulate over my life, you know? So I, and, and because 
because I watched what he went through with being a Kurd and seeing the genocides happen over and over again and seeing this and, you know, and, you know, I have family that was killed. I have, you know, and, and I was, even though I, I didn't grow up speaking the language because I wasn't taught it, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, and so I definitely felt like an outsider there. I was always close to the Kurdish community and I loved all my family. And so I think the desire to help was there from the beginning, yeah. you know, even in like little food drives and things like that, that we would do during the different wars. But then this is like, this was not only a desire to help and to spread awareness, but also just to pay tribute to my dad because he, you know, what he's gone through and the fact that he is still such an amazing person who's like, come on in, let me feed you is just a huge life lesson to me. And yeah. so that's something that I wanted to, to share. And, you know, hopefully like that's the kind of thing that my son will also get from the book. Yeah. It's you know. so, you know, it's, it's so amazing how tied uh, this country is to the Middle East and how, I mean, just absolutely nothing that we know about, right? Like it's just right. not part of the daily conversation. And like yeah. the more you delve into the inner workings of how we operate, you know, particularly, I only know the modern, I only know since I've been here, but like, since I've been here, Middle East has been really important. And like, I'm guessing if you ask most people on the street, let's put the, what are the countries? Yeah. Is like, nobody's going to have any idea. And like the Kurds are, I, you know, they're just a, that is a word that gets used in the media that there's, yeah. that people just don't understand. Absolutely. Um, and having had some authors on now talking about that is part of the reason I wanted to have you on. Like, it's just such an important part of like this country. Yeah. Like in the sort of imperialism and colonialism. And like, we do not think about these things on a daily basis. No. And the consequences of that are that lots of people are getting killed. <laughs> and 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 still somehow love us which yeah. is the crazy thing i mean you know particularly after I, this last round of bullshit i know and i mean they're like i love america i love the united states god you know and i'm like i'm so sorry i'm so so oh, okay you do okay you do still love us okay yeah you know i mean it's but yeah, it also it also ahead, lets you realize like well how bad must the rest of it be if 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 we're like literally we're still the best hope <laughs> yeah like the last administration literally just leaves the kurdish people to be massacred yeah. and the fact that people would still even be like you're still the best hope it's like yeah. this is not a thing we should be proud of no right no no it's not and uh, but i mean and i think that that's the one thing i do know is that a lot of people's understanding of who the kurds are is that they're the people that we've betrayed recently yeah and so repeatedly the evergreen, evergreen. Back. Back. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there's a history of it for sure, yeah. but they're they're kind of aware just of the latest one, and so yeah. you know the book touches on a little bit before that as well. Yeah, uh, but you know they, but it's still there's still a very little understanding. Like when I tell people that Kurdistan has snow in the winter, and that you know there's, I mean, green trees and waterfalls, and I mean it looks a lot like a lot of the landscape of where I was looks a lot like California. Yeah. Um, and that's something that nobody, you know, a lot of people just can't even believe, you know, I post pictures from my trip and people are like, that's the Middle East. Yeah. You know, I mean, well, you and their preconceived ideas of, you know, sand dunes, you know, well, they, well, they forget that like in the, up until the seventies, like uh, Iran and Iraq were like, yeah. I mean, they had like their cities. I mean, they were major capital places. Like these were, it, it's the yeah. wars that made that go away. Right. Like yeah. it, it is not the, the memory the the yeah. sort of institutional memory that we have here is so very short 
Yeah. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I love the program. It's one of the reasons I love having writers on because the other thing that we do is provide a longer term institutional memory of those things and go, what is today was not necessarily what yesterday was. Yeah. And I mean, there, you know, they, you pass down, you know, trauma as well. Yeah. You, you pass down a lot. I mean, through the stories, through the memories, through the behavior, through everything. And yeah. so there's a lot of generations of, of hurt that, you know, I mean, everywhere, obviously not just, not just in Kurdistan, obviously where you are every, you right. know, um, but no, I mean, it's, it's, I, that's one of the things I love about being a writer is just so that I can open a door to a world that somebody, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not anybody's fault that they didn't realize that this Kurdistan could look like this. That's just how, how life is and what we've been exposed to. And so I'm just happy that I can expose people to a different side that maybe they wouldn't have found in a news article, you know? Yeah, right. It's so like I saw that I immediately thought of the things that they carried. Like without it, before I've yeah. even seen the book, I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, is this like, are we thematically in a title thing where I'm like, oh, I feel like I might know what I'm about to get myself into. Yep, you are. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why writing titles is so important. Well, it has been fantastic. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you Thank so much you. for spending an hour with me. And I'm glad that our dogs were not insane. No, I know. I mean, it's not over yet. Any second now, he's going to attack something. (laughs) Well, you guys have a great uh, rest of your day, and I really hope we can do this again soon. I cannot wait to read this book. Thank you. Thank you. I've had a great time being on here. Well, there you have it. That was my conversation with Gian Zardar. Her second book, Take What You Can Carry, is out right now. I hope you go get that. I cannot wait to read this. Before we get out of here, a couple of reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors that I ask you about every week. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, particularly at Apple. Tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother Mass Sleep with Podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McLear. Also, if you head on over to the... Uh, Solid Listen Network website, you will see all the audio programs that we now have going on. There's so much content, uh, I can't even tell you about it, because uh, we would be here all day. Don't forget, we also got the video podcast coming out on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel. Uh, those come out basically every Friday and Monday. They are truncated versions of this, generally around uh, books that are coming out right now. Or you can catch the audio of that right here on this channel, the jam is out every Wednesday. To make sure that you don't miss any of that, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. It's Jennifer, a founder of the Go Kid Go Network. Do your kids love wacky worlds, superheroes, and inventing? Of course they do. That's why our shows Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow are set in Pflugerville, the nonstop fun and adventure universe where imagination, creativity, STEM, and positive role models abound. Join the Pflugerville fun by searching for Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.